This is the Proactive IT Podcast. This week, the latest in IT and cybersecurity news, plus what does Windows 7 end-of-life mean to HIPAA, the heartache after a ransomware attack, and encryption for HIPAA. This is Episode 12. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Proactive IT Podcast. Each week, we talk about the latest in tech and cyber news, compliance, and more. We also bring you real-world examples to learn from so you can better protect your business and identity. This podcast is brought to you by Nawash Tech, a client-focused and security-minded IT consultant located in Central Connecticut. You can find us at nawashtech.com. That's N-W-A-J-Tech.com. All right, let's start with what we always start with, Patch Tuesday Updates. The Microsoft Windows update will be, Patch Tuesday update will be January 14th, which corresponds with Windows 7 and Windows Server 2008 R2 end of life. So if you're still using 7 or 2008 R2, it is time to move on, update to Windows 10 or to Server 2016 or 2019. They will offer extended support for Windows 7, um, but it's really more beneficial to move on to Windows 10, and we're going to talk about more about Windows 7 later on in this episode. Uh, Microsoft did release an update for uh, Office, Microsoft Office. Uh, Firefox did update to 72.0.1. Now, that's important because there was an update to 72. There were issues with 72. They updated almost immediately to 72.0.1. Uh, as we mentioned last week, Python 2.7 has reached end of life. The last update will be, I believe it was April, and then they will move on. So update to Python 3. Juniper Networks released some security updates, as did Cisco, so for multiple products for Cisco. So go check out those updates, get them applied ASAP. We will talk about the Windows, uh, Microsoft Windows updates more next week. Um, so that's it for the updates this week. Let's move along. All right, first up for the news for the week. There are hackers, attackers, we'll use the word attackers, scanning for vulnerable Citrix servers. You should secure them now. This is on Bleeping Computer. We did report this vulnerability a couple weeks ago. Security researchers have observed ongoing scans for Citrix Application Delivery Controller, NetScaler ADC, and Citrix Gateway, NetScaler Gateway, and there's a few different versions of those that are impacted. Servers vulnerable to attacks exploiting CVE 2019-19781. During the last week, this vulnerability impacts multiple Citrix products, and it could potentially expose networks of over 80,000 firms to attack hacking attacks, uh, according to a positive technologies report from December. Um, they've found 80,000, at least 80,000 companies in 158 different countries, potentially at risk. Top five countries, uh, number one being the United States, 38% of all vulnerable organizations, then you followed by UK, Germany, Netherlands, and Australia. Um, there are no public exploits available yet. I use the word yet. Um, but 
there are, there are people scanning for these networks as we speak. So you can expect there to be an attack. There is mitigation measures. There is no patch as of yet from Citrix, but there are mitigation measures. You should go to the Citrix site, the Citrix support site, and follow the steps to uh, mitigate the risk that exists right now with Citrix um, Netscaler and Citrix application delivery controller. Uh, moving along, Bleeping Computer, TrickBot Gang created a custom post exploitation framework. So essentially, TrickBot has decided to stop using, or at least in this instance, instance stop using um, pre-made and well-known toolkits, and they have created their own toolkit, toolkit post-exploitation toolkit. So TrickBot is a banking trojan. It is known for stealing credentials. Um, in gaining access and what's uh what's even scarier is that trickbot is able to do more than just steal credentials and usually when trickbot gets gets on a network it does a whole bunch of different things and eventually um you know your your data is stolen and you have ransomware on your computer on your network so you you um they're evolving i guess you could say so now the trickbot is creating their own frameworks and they are um, using this in the wild now. So that is on Bleeping Computer. You can read more about it, but just know that TrickBot is evolving and getting more sophisticated. Threat Post, this is good news. We have some good news too this week, see? Google ditches patch time bug disclosure in favor of 90-day policy. So what what is going on here? It used to be that if Google found a vulnerability Let's say they found a Microsoft vulnerability and Microsoft patched that vulnerability, a zero-day vulnerability, that is, and they patched that vulnerability a week after Google found it. Google would then notify the rest of the world about this zero-day. And the problem with that is it didn't give people that were using those products time to um, look into the the patch and what, you know, test it on a and a small part of their network to make sure that it didn't just didn't break anything else and really just didn't give anybody a chance to work with with the update so now google has decided that they will wait the full 90 days as they do with zero days that don't get patched so if you have a zero day it gets patched on day 20 they will wait full 90 days to go public with that that vulnerability so that's kind of good news. It gives uh, it gives pro it gives the owners of those products time to deal with the patching, assuming that the vendor does take care of that patch in a relatively short period of time. Um, on bleeping computer, we have what do we have? Oh, the tra a TravelX update. So TravelX. Uh, you may have heard, we've talked about it on the show a few times already in the last, since New Year's Eve, they were hit with a ransomware attack on New Year's Eve. It is the Soto, Soto no Kibi ransomware. Soto no Kibi demanded $3 million to this point. It is now January 10th. Um, so 11 days later, they still have not paid that ransom. They still have not recovered. They are still down. So no website, no currency exchange. TravelX is a currency exchange um, service in UK. They are down. 
Um, Soto Nukibi says that they did steal data, five gigs of data, and that they will release it to the public if they if TravelX doesn't pay up. So initially they demanded three million. They are now demanding six million dollars, or the equivalent of six million dollars in in Bitcoin. Um, they claim to have dates of birth, social security numbers, credit card numbers, and other information. <clears throat> this was um, Soto Nakibi told this to bleeping computer. So they are now looking for $6 million rather than $3 million. And as of this moment, TravelX has still not paid the ransom. And I wouldn't recommend that they do, but it's now a $6 million ransom. And they are now looking at... Um, even bigger issues. So if and now it does say in the article, if the data is released, the attack will need to be classified as a data breach. Notifications and free monitoring services will need to be offered. GDPR fines would likely, would be likely as are the risk of class, class action lawsuits. So you can imagine, you know, now they're balanced. They're trying to determine is $6 million or is, do we deal with the, the fallout from this? If, if in fact the people do have the data they claim to have now i told you guys a few weeks ago this was going to be the trend moving forward and here we're seeing it again we've seen it a few times in the last um few weeks so here here it is again they're threatening it it's it's not known if they're going to if they have the data and if they're going to honor that threat we will see on threat post four ring employees fired for spying on customers so we've talked about ring cameras and uh the cameras being i don't the the word hack isn't really appropriate because essentially what has happened is users of the cameras were not using strong password policies they did not activate two-factor authentication and people compromised the cameras um so from threat post again ring said that four employees were fired because they're of their inappropriate access to customers connected video feeds smart doorbell company ring which of course is owned by amazon said that it has fired four employees over the past four years for inappropriately accessing customer video footage this disclosure comes in recent letter to senators in response to a november inquiry into the company's data policies from amazon own ring as it attempts to defend the privacy of its platform which has been plagued by data privacy incidents over the past year in the letter, Ring said the former employees were authorized to view d video data, but their attempted access to the data exceeded what was necessary for their job function. In each instance, one, once Ring was made aware of the alleged conduct, Ring promptly investigated the incident, and after determining that the individual violated company policy, terminated the individual. According to Ring's January 6th letter obtained by Motherboard, in addition to taking swift action to investigate and take appropriate disciplinary action to each of these cases, Ring has taken multiple actions to limit such data access to a smaller number of team members. So Ring said employees have access to live feeds only when customers grant them permission solely for troubleshooting a device issue. The company said it periodically reviews the access privilege that it grants to employees to verify their need for customer data access. It's not clear how long each employee was able to view the feeds or how many customers were impacted. ThreatPost has reached out to Amazon for further details. However, Ring isn't alone in facing challenges around weeding out employees who may be accessing sensitive personal data. In May 2019, a report outlined how Snap employees were abusing their access to private user data, which includes location data, save snaps, and phone numbers. And a report in 2018 found that Facebook had fired an employee who allegedly abused his access to data to stalk women um so 
you know, Ring is Ring is really kind of taking a taking a hit for the team lately. It's uh, a good product. I don't know, you know, what'll come of this. I'm sure that that uh, Amazon will find their way through it, navigate their way through it. They don't, you know, there's not a lot that Amazon did wrong. Again, the 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 hacking we'll call it hacking for the purpose of this podcast of the cameras was not any fault of their own. They they didn't tell the users to use the same username and password that they use for everything else. They didn't tell users to not use two-factor authentication. Maybe they could highlight that option a little better. Maybe they can educate their, their customers a little better. But overall, I don't think uh, Amazon could be blamed for that. And then, you know, people are going to do what people do. Uh, and then finally, um, we talked about it a few days ago. The city of Las Vegas was hit with a, with a cyber attack. Still no confirmation as to what that was. But ZDNet, city of Las Vegas, said it successfully avoided devastating cyber attack, a security breach that took place on January 7th. Uh, the city said it detected intrusion, intrusion in time to prevent any damage. So the attack began on 4.30 a.m. Tuesday morning, January 7th. And IT staff immediately detected the intrusion, took steps to protect impacted systems, and the city responded by taking several services offline, including its public website, which is still down at the time of the writing. The writing is on January 9th, so yesterday. Um, city officials have not disclosed any details about the nature of the incident, but local press reported that it might have involved an email delivery vector. In a subsequent statement published on Twitter on Wednesday, the city confirmed re it resumed full operations with all data systems functioning as normal. Thanks to our software, security systems, and fast action by our, our IT staff, we were fortunate to avoid what had the potential to be a devastating situation. It said, we do not believe any data has was lost from our systems and no personal data was taken. We are unclear as to who was responsible for the compromise, but we will continue to look for potential indications. The city also added, so you can... Expect that within a couple of days of the city of Las Vegas investigating, we will be we will become we will be made aware of what the attack was exactly. Um, but the good news is, it looks to be minimal damage caused by this attack. Um, so good job by the fast acting IT team. Good job by the city of Las Vegas of making sure there was minimal impact. All right, that wraps up the news. We're going to move around on to our focus topics for the week. All right, our first topic of the week um, comes from KrebsOnSecurity.com, and this is regarding a November 2019 ransomware attack that hit Virtual Care Provider Inc. in uh, I believe it was Wisconsin, where uh, it turns out that it impacted 110 clients of theirs. So a virtual care provider, Inc., is an MSP. They were hit by the Ryuk ransomware strain, and this in turn um, spread to 110 of their clients, and it took down most of their clients in the process. Now, the the president of the company, Karen Christensen, has been very upfront, didn't, you know, didn't hide, didn't run, and did whatever they could do. And so Krebs um, talked to her 
and it's it's actually a pretty interesting the conversation. But there is a an, a piece, an important piece of information in in this conversation. So the title of the the blog post is the hidden cost of ransomware wholesale password theft. Uh, so organizations in the throes of cleaning up after a ransomware outbreak typically will change passwords for all user accounts that have access to any email system, servers, and desktop workstations within their network. But all too often, ransomware victims fail to grasp that the crooks behind these attacks can and frequently do siphon every single password stored on each infected endpoint. So I always tell people, you know, don't store your passwords in Google Chrome, and you're going to see why in a minute. The result of this oversight may have may offer attackers of way back into the affected organization access to financial and healthcare accounts, or worse yet, key tools for attacking the victim's various business partners and clients. In mid-November 2019, Wisconsin-based virtual care provider Inc., VCPI for short, was hit by the Ryuk ransomware strain. VCPI manages the IT systems for some 110 clients that serve approximately 2,400 nursing homes in 45 U.S. states. VCPI declined to pay the multi-million dollar ransom demanded by their extortionists, and the attack cut off many of those elder care facilities from their patient records, email, and telephone service for days or weeks while VCPI rebuilt its network. Just hours after the story was published, VCPI chief executive and owner Karen Christensen reached out to say she hoped I would write a follow-up since piece about how they recovered from the incident. My reply was that I'd consider doing so if there was something in their experience that I thought others could learn from their handling of the incident. I had no inkling at the time of how much I would learn in the days ahead. So eerie emails. On December 3rd, I contacted Christensen to schedule a follow-up interview. This is Krebs again. Krebs on security.com. Uh, a follow-up interview for the next day on the morning of December 4th, less than two hours before my scheduled call with VCPI and more than two weeks after the start of their ransomware attack, I heard via email from someone claiming to be part of the criminal group that launched the Ryuk ransomware inside VCPI. The email was unsettling because its timing suggested that whoever sent it somehow knew I was going to speak with VCPI later that day. This person said they wanted me to reiterate a message they just sent to the owner of VCPI stating that their offer of a greatly reduced price for a digital key needed to unlock servers and workstations seized by the malware would expire soon if the company continued to ignore them. Maybe you chat to them. Let's see if that works, the email suggested. The anonymous individual behind that communication declined to provide proof that they were part of the group that held VCPI's network for ransom, and after an increasingly combative and personally threatening exchange of messages, soon stopped responding to requests for more information. We were bitten with releasing evidence before, hence we have stopped this even in our ransoms, the anonymous person wrote. If you want proof we have hacked T-Systems as well, you may confirm this with them. We haven't seen any media articles on this and as much you should be the first to report it we are sure they are just keeping it under wraps security news site bleeping computer reported on t-systems ryuk ransomware attack on december 3rd in our december 4th interview vcpi's acting chief information security officer mark schaefer mark schaefer ciso at wisconsin-based sva consulting confirmed that company received a nearly identical message that same morning and that the wording seemed very similar to the original extortion demand the company received. However, Schaefer assured me that VCPI had indeed rebuilt its, rebuilt its small network, or I'm sorry, it rebuilt its email network following the intrusion and strictly used the third-party service to discuss remediation efforts with other sensitive topics. Like a company battling a country, Christensen said several factors stopped 
The painful Ryuk ransomware attack from morphing into a company-ending event. For starters, she said, an employee spotted suspicious activity on their network in the early morning hours of Saturday, November 16th. She said that employee then immediately alerted higher-ups within VCPI who ordered a complete and immediate shutdown of the entire network. The bottom line is at 2 a.m. on a Saturday, it was still a human being who saw a bunch of lights and had enough presence of mind to say someone else might want to take a look at this, she said. The other guy he called said he didn't like it either and called the chief information officer at 2.30 a.m. who picked up his cell phone and said shut it off from the internet. Schaefer said another mitigating factor was that VCPI had contracted with a third party roughly six months prior to the attack to establish off-site data backups that were not directly connected to the company's infrastructure. The authentication for that was entirely separate, so the lateral movement of the intruders didn't allow them to touch that, Schaefer said. Schaefer said the move up the move to third-party data backups coincided with a comprehensive internal review that identified multiple areas where VCPI could harden its security, but that the attack is hit before the company could complete work in some of those action items. We did a risk assessment, which was pretty much spot on. We just needed more time to work on it before we got hit, he said. We were doing the right things, just not fast enough. If we'd had more time to prepare, it would have gone better. I feel like we were company battling a country it's not a fair fight and and once you're targeted it's pretty tough to defend wholesale password theft just after receiving a tip from a reader about the ongoing Ryuk infestation at vcpi krebs on security contacted milwaukee-based hold security to see if its owner alex holden had any more information about the attack Holden said his team had previously intercepted online traffic between and among multiple ransomware gangs and their victims, and I was curious to know if that had tr held true in the VCPI attack as well. Sure enough, Holden quickly sent over several log logs of data suggesting the attackers had breached VCPI's network on multiple occasions over the previous 14 months, so more than a year they were in there. While it, is while it is clear that the initial breach occurred 14 months ago, the escalation of the compromise didn't start until around November 15th of this year, which is 2019. Holden said at the time, when we looked at this in retrospect during these three days, the cyber criminals slowly compromised the entire network, disabling antivirus, running c customized scripts, and deploying ransomware. They didn't even succeed at first, but they kept trying. Holden said it appears... The intruders laid the groundwork for VCPI using Emotet, a powerful malware tool typically disseminated via spam. Emotet continues to be among the most costly and destructive malware, reads a July 2018 alert on the malware from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Its worm-like features result in rapidly spreading network-wide infection, which are difficult to combat. According to Holden, after using Emotet to prime VCPI servers and endpoints for ransomware attack, the intruders deployed a module of Emotet called TrickBot, which is a banking trojan often used to download other malware and harvest passwords from infected systems. So you can see how sophisticated this is. Indeed, Holden shared records of communication for VCPI's tormentors, suggesting they'd unleash TrickBot to steal passwords from infected VCPI endpoints that the company used to log in at more than 300 websites and services, including identity and password management platforms, Autho and LastPass, multiple personal and business banking portals, Microsoft Office 365, direct deposit and Medicaid billing portals, cloud-based health insurance manage management portals, numerous online payment processing services, cloud-based payroll management services, prescription management services, commercial phone, internet, and power services, 
medical supply services, state and local government competitive bidding portals, online content distribution networks, shipping and postage accounts, Amazon, Facebook, LinkedIn, Microsoft, and Twitter accounts. Toward the end of my follow-up interview with Schaefer and VCPI's Christensen, I shared Holden's list of sites for which the attackers had apparently stolen internal company credentials. At that point, Christensen abruptly ended the interview and got off the line saying she had personal matters to attend to. Schaefer thanked me for sharing the list, noting that it looked like VCPI probably now had a few more notifications to do. Moral of the story, companies that experience a ransomware attack or or for that matter, any type of equally invasive malware infestation should assume that all credentials stored anywhere on the local network, including those saved inside web browsers and password managers, are compromised and need to be changed. Out of the abundance of caution, this process should be done from a pristine, preferably non-Windows-based system that does not reside within the network compromised by the attackers. In addition, full use should be made of the strongest method available for securing these passwords with multi-factor authentication. So that, again, is on krebsonsecurity.com. Go check that out because it's uh, it's really a big lesson in how to better protect your information um, was not the case here. And so or maybe it seems like they were taking the appropriate steps. They just hadn't gotten there yet. But what also seems to have failed is not realizing that more was compromised than they originally thought. All right, next up, I mentioned earlier in the update, the Patch Tuesday update, that there is um, that Windows 7 end of life is coming up next week, Tuesday, to be exact. So here's the dilemma, Windows 7 end of life and HIPAA dilemma. This is a blog post on watchtech.com. Uh, so on January 14, 2020, Microsoft will end support for Windows 7 and Windows Server 2008 R2. That means after the next patch Tuesday, Windows 7 and 2008 R2 will no longer receive regular security updates. So what does that mean for healthcare practices who still use Windows 7 or Server R2008 R2? So security risk assessments are required part of HIPAA compliance program. As part of the SRA, you should be identifying any technology that is at risk of being vulnerable to exploits and cyber threats. Now, we hear all the time about uh, hospital equipment, medical equipment that hasn't been updated and then becomes vulnerable. And there was even a HIPAA breach, I believe, last week where some radiology equipment was compromised. Uh, this applies to Microsoft Windows too. So Windows 7 and Server 2008 R2 have already been exposed to very large ransomware attacks in the past. Many Windows 7 computers remain unpatched to those threats. As of October 2019, Windows 7 still held 27% of the Windows Microsoft Windows market share. It is believed that the share will still be 13% by 2021, which turns out to be about 100 million computers. That's a lot of potential targets a year after security updates stop. Windows 7 and Server 2008 R2 will no longer be a secure option for your business. Once regularly, once regularly security updates, once regular security updates stop, vulnerabilities will be discovered. These vulnerabilities will allow cyber attackers to gain access to your computers. Once the attackers gain access to a computer on your network, it becomes easier to gain access to everything else. A high-level overview of life after Windows 7 support. Um, we have seen numerous cases of attackers hanging around in business networks, I just talked about one, for years before wreaking havoc. There were several well-publicized incidents just last year. I talked about one earlier in this podcast. 
uh, a few months after Windows 7 Server 2008 support ends, there will likely be vulnerabilities. The vulnerabilities might make it easier for attackers to gain access to those Windows 7 computers. Once the attackers gain access to even one computer in your organization, they will take their time to figure out if you have anything of value, which is primarily data. Data is gold. Data is gold. It's probably worth more than gold at this point. And they will figure out how to best exploit this. It's likely that they will utilize tools, many of which are free or very clean or very cheap, sorry, to gain admin level access to your network. Now that they have admin access, they will likely steal your data and store it where they can access it again. If your network has access to any other valuable in the attacker's mind assets that they will also exploit this. Once they are confident that they have their gold, which is data, they will most likely launch a ransomware attack. While your data will be encrypted, the attackers will demand a ransom and probably threaten to expose the data they stole if you do not pay up. Even if you have a great backup disaster recovery plan in place, you're still exposed. Your business is now at risk of being destroyed. 60% of businesses close six months after a data breach. Even if you do survive, you will lose customers. Your business reputation will take a big hit. Compliance will crush you if you're on Windows 7. If you're a healthcare provider, law firm, financial firm, or other regulated business, you're going to be in an even worse shape. From a HIPAA perspective, the OCR could view this as negligence. If you perform this, the required security risk assessment, risk assessment, then you should have identified that Windows 7 Server 2008 R2 will be at risk after January 14, 2020. If you do not address this, it can look... If you did not address it, this can look as though you did not follow the recommendations from your own SRA. More likely, you didn't conduct an SRA as required under HIPAA. The fact that you still have Windows 7 on your network is a good indication that you do not have IT or are ignoring the advice of IT. Doing so is detrimental, detrimental to your practice and even more importantly, your patients. This is good indication that you do not have a HIPAA compliance program in place. The good news is the OCR will probably provide technical assistance the first time they visit. If they do this, you should heed their advice. The second time won't be as pretty. It's not about HIPAA. It's not about the HIPAA potential fine. I say this because financial penalties seem to scare some healthcare practices. The truth of the matter is you're in business that requires you you to care for your clients. Part of caring for your clients is protecting them. In the IT world, a good IT vendor will go above and beyond to secure, educate, and mitigate risk to their technology and data. In healthcare, you go to great lengths to protect your client's confidentiality, integrity, and availability of their health records. The same is true in legal and financial. If you're in business to care for someone, you should take care of their sensitive data as well. It's about taking care of people. Is Windows 7 HIPAA compliant? So that's the big question here. The short answer is after January 14, 2020, it will be considered an unnecessary and avoidable risk. It will not be HIPAA compliant to use Windows 7 Server 2008 R2 even if you follow best practices. So even if you have backups in place, encryption set up, security software, and all that other stuff, you are you'll still be out of compliance. You can purchase an extended support plan from Microsoft for the, but for the price and potential risk, it makes more sense to just upgrade to Windows 10. So final thought: Windows 7 and Server 2008 R2. Windows 7 was one of my favorite Microsoft operating systems. It was stable. It worked well. It was a great improvement over Vista. Its time has sailed. It has been a risky operating system for years now. It was a big target for of the WannaCry ransomware outbreak that caused many businesses to go into a frenzy. 
Even if you were not hit by WannaCry, you probably spent a lot of money mitigating the risk. The longer you keep Windows 7 Server 2008 R2 on your business network, the bigger the risk becomes. It's time to move on. It's time to take care of your business and clients. So that's on the Watch Tech website. You can go read it um, and, you know, tell me, is it, uh, is it HIPAA compliant or not? Okay, and the last bit of, last topic for today uh, on ZDNet, these hacking groups are, are eyeing power grids, says security company. Cybersecurity company warns that hackers are investigating industrial control systems associated with power infrastructure. At least three hacking groups have the capability to interfere with or disrupt power grids across the U.S., and the number of cyber criminal operations targeting electricity and other utilities is on the rise, according to a new report on the state of industrial control systems. Cybersecurity company Drago said the political and military tensions in the Gulf appear to coincide with a rise in interest in hacking groups targeting electricity grids, power companies, and other systems related to utilities in the U.S. The threat landscape's focusing on electric utilities in North America is expansive and increasing, led by numerous intrusions into ICS systems for reconnaissance and research purposes and ICS activity groups demonstrating new interest in the electric sector, warned its North American Electric Cyber Threat Perspective report. The report notes that the security researchers are tracking seven groups that target electrical facilities in North America and that three of these have demonstrated the capability to infiltrate or disrupt electrical power networks. While Dragos doesn't attribute which nation states or cyber criminal groups could be behind these attacks, the company has outlined three operations that show evidence of disruption capabilities, Xenotime, Demoloy, and Electrum. Xenotime is the hacking group behind the Triton cyber attack that disrupted oil and gas facilities in Saudi Arabia in 2017. This attack was tailored towards Triconics safety controllers, and researchers warned that the incident represented an escalation of ICS attacks due to its potential catastrophic capabilities and consequences. Since then, Xenotime has expanded activity to include electric facilities in North America alongside utilities across Europe, Australia, and the Middle East. The group has repeatedly demonstrated its ability to access, operate, and conduct attacks in an industrial environment, and Dragos believes the group capable of attacks against U.S.-based systems. Demoloy is described as a highly aggressive and capable activity group with the ability to achieve long-term and persistent access to IT and operational environments for both intelligence gathering and possible disruption. Victims of the group's hacking campaigns have already been discovered in Turkey, Europe, and North America. It's suggested that Demoloy has links to the Dragonfly hacking group. A third group, Electrum, is also described as capable of developing malware that can modify electric equipment processes and ICS controls, while it mostly focused previously attacks on Ukraine, including causing power outages in winter. It is described as well-resourced, and Dragos warned that the group is capable of physically disruptive events. North American electric utilities should consider Electrum to be a serious threat, warns the paper. While the report states that there have been some minor improvements to the security of these systems, there's been there's still more to be done. But simple security practices like segmenting networks, installing security patches, not using default passwords, inquiring two-factor authentication of systems inside industrial environments would go a long way towards protecting against these kinds of cyber attacks. So pretty interesting. Uh, the ICS systems are still capable, still a, a potential threat um, 
we know we've seen the frenzy that occurs after a massive power outage in the U.S. Um, there hasn't been one in a little while, other than re- weather related. And the, the last major one I think was maybe early two thousands. Um, but I do remember the panic that set in after. Um, so electric companies, electric grids, I should say, need to you need to do a better job preparing for not doing those simple things that I just listed off. Alright, it's time for the HIPAA breach report. It was quiet up until till maybe Wednesday. Um, now we have a bunch of stuff, so we're going to start with up to 25,000 patients of the Native American Rehabil- Rehabilitation Association of the Northwest affected by a malware attack. It is NARA for short, provider of education, physical, and mental health services and substance abuse treatment services to Native Americans is alerting certain individuals about a malware infection that has potentially allowed unauthorized individuals to gain access to their protected health information. NARA reports that the attack occurred on November 4th, 2019. The malware initially bypassed security systems but was detected later that afternoon. The threat was contained by November 5th, and all passwords and email accounts were reset by November 6th. The malware was determined to be Emotet, a credential stealer that can also exfiltrate emails and email attachment. It is therefore possible that the attackers obtained emails and attachments into compromised accounts, some of which included protected health information. Typically when, this me now, uh, ad-libbing, particularly when Emotet, when it compromises a system, sometimes includes TrickBot, which also steals credentials. So um, hopefully they got away with this, no no further damage. But according to NARA press release issued on January 3rd, 2020, the forensic investigation confirmed that the PHI of 344 individuals was either accessed by attackers or there was a high risk of the information being accessed. Another group of patients was also potentially affected. For this group, no evidence of unauthorized access was found. However, OCR... Uh, believes that up to 25,187 individuals may have been affected. So big big number of, uh, a big gap in difference there. So it'll be interesting to see what comes of that. Um, types of information that were, were in the email accounts included home addresses, full names, social security numbers, birth dates, medical record, or patient ID numbers. Uh, a limited number of individuals also had clinical information exposed, including diagnosis, services received, treatment information, and treatment dates. It is sad that there are people in the world whose intent is to harm, is to cause harm and distress to vulnerable populations, such as our client, said Jacqueline Mercer, CEO of NARA Northwest. Words cannot express how truly sorry we are that our clients in NARA Northwest have been subjected to this malware attack. A new endpoint protection solution has now been implemented. So I, it's a great, you know, press release statement made by CEO. Uh, unfortunately, you should have been doing the right thing all along. You're not the first healthcare system to be compromised. Uh, but it does seem like they got to handle it pretty quickly. So that's good. Potentially 25,000 records. Mercy Health Lorraine Hospital Laboratory patients affected by mailing error. So short story, we've seen this a few times already in the last few weeks. A, a, an error in the mailing system that they use. Um, RCM Enterprise Services is a provider of patient billing services to Mercy Health Lorraine Hospital. Somehow when they sent out the their mailing, 
their so the social security number was viewable in the transparent window of the envelope. So um, that's a little scary. It does not end. That happened on on or around November seventh of twenty nineteen. Um, it does not say how many people were impacted by this. So we'll keep you up to date um, when more information is available. Alamir Health phishing attack impacts forty nine thousand three hundred fifty one patients. So Alamir Health in Alexandria, Minnesota, is notifying almost fifty thousand patients that some of their protected health information was potentially accessed by unauthorized individuals as a result of a phishing attack. A Alamir Health learned about the phishing attack on November 6, 2019 and launched an internal investigation which confirmed the account was accessed by an unauthorized individual between October 31st and November 1st of 2019. So, uh, two days. A company forensic company a computer forensics company was engaged to assist with the investigation and discovered on November 10th that a second email account had been breached on November 6th. Comprehensive review of the compromised accounts revealed some emails and email attachments contained protected health information. The types of information potentially compromised in the attack varied from patient to patient and may have included the following. Names, addresses, dates of birth, medical record numbers, health insurance information, treatment information, and or diagnosis information. A limited number of social security numbers and driver's license number were also found in the accounts. Alamir Health was unable to confirm whether the, any emails or email attachments containing PHI were accessed or copied by the attackers, but unauthorized PHI access and data theft could not be ruled out. On January 3rd, 2020, Alamir Health sent notifications to all 49,351 patients whose information was present in the email accounts. Individuals whose social security numbers or driver's license number were exposed have been offered complimentary credit monitoring and identity theft protection services for 12 months. No reports of misuse of patient information have been received to date. Um, Alamir Health, again, a little too little too late. Alamir Health has now added more layers to its cyber defenses and further security awareness training has been given to employees to help them identify phishing emails and other email-based threats. Uh, so 50000 that's going to be a hefty fine. Ransomware attacks reported by Florida and Texas healthcare providers. It's, um, let's see what we got here. It's becoming increasingly common for threat actors to use ransomware to uh, encrypt files to protect data access to prevent data access but also to steal data and threaten to publish it or sell the stolen data if the ransom is not paid this new tactic is intended to increase the likelihood of victims paying the ransom the center for facial restoration of miramar florida is one of the latest healthcare providers to experience such an attack richard e davis md facs of the center of facial restoration received a ransom demand on November 8, 2019, informing him that his clinic server had been reached, breached and data had been stolen. The attacker said that data could be publicly exposed or traded with third parties if the ransom was not paid. Dr. Davis filed a complaint with the FBI Cyber Crime Center and met with the FBI agents investigating the attack. After the attack occurred, Dr. Davis was contacted by, by around 15 to 20 patients who had also been contacted by the attacker and issued with a ransom demand. So that's proof they have the, the data. The patients were told that their photographs and personal data would be published if the ransom demand was not paid. According to Dr. Davis's substitute breach notice, the compromised server contained the data of approximately 3,600 patients. While it is possible the attacker stole the files of all patients, there, there are reasons to suspect only a very small number of patient photographs and personal data may have been stolen. It has taken some time to determine which patients have been affected as much of the information held on patients was strong, uh, was stored and scanned patient intake forms rather than a database which 
each file had to be open and checked manually, and that was a painstakingly slow and labor-intensive process. The types of data exposed was limited to photocopies of driver's license or passwords, home addresses, email addresses, telephone numbers, insurance policy numbers, and credit card numbers, most of which only showed the last four digits. All patients potentially affected by the attack have now been notified, and steps have been taken to improve security, including replacing all hard drives and implementing new firewalls and anti-malware software. The ransom demand has not been paid. Children's Choice Pediatrics Ransomware Attacks Impacts 12,689 Patients Children's Choice Pediatrics in McKinney, Texas is notifying 12,689 patients that some of their protected health information may have been accessed by unauthorized individuals who use ransomware to try to extort money from the practice. The attack occurred on or around October 27, 2019 and resulted in the encryption of data on its network. Children's Choice had backed up all data and attempts were made to recover all files encrypted by the ransomware. That process has been completed, but it was not possible to restore all patient data. Some patient records could not be recovered. Affected patients have been advised to be alert to the possibility of data misuse and to monitor their account statements for signs of fraudulent activity. No reports have been received to suggest any patient data was stolen or has been misused. Children's Choice has now strengthened security to prevent similar attacks from occurring in the future. Uh, so it actually seems like at least they had a backup plan in place, even though it doesn't seem like everything was was um, backed up correctly or, or was, I don't know, maybe it got corrupted in the process. I don't know what they were using for backup, but maybe it got backed up in the process. Uh, but it does seem it took them just a little longer than 60 days to report, which, uh, as we know, is not does not follow HIPAA reporting rules, um, breach report rules. So good for them in that in one aspect, not good in the other. That is it for our HIPAA breach. We're going to move on to our HIPAA, HIPAA breach notifications. We're going to move on to our HIPAA education, and we're going to talk about a little bit about encryption. So stay tuned. All right, for our HIPAA corner this week, a HIPAA education piece, we're going to talk about encryption. There's been still even in 2019, and I imagine there'll still be some in 2020, cases where an unencrypted device turned up missing, lost, stolen, you know, whatever whatever it may be. And it's it's not hard to encrypt a device and protect your your healthcare pra- your healthcare practice. And in doing so, once that device is encrypted, you you then satisfy the needs for HIPAA and you remove the risk of being fined or otherwise investigated by OCR. So it's it's silly to me that that this still happens in 2019, 2020. We're in 2020 now. It's it's just silly that it still happens. Now, that being said, there's really two things that that you need to worry about when it comes to encryption. There's in, there's uh, encrypting data at rest, which means it's static, it's not moving. So on a laptop, on a USB drive, on a server, on a desktop, uh, any device, on a, a smartphone, those need to be encrypted. And then there's encryption uh, in when mostly as it relates to communicating, so email and t- messaging, um, whether that's through an app or through secure text messaging. So we're going to talk about, first, we're going to talk about through for messaging. And what needs to happen is 
you need to have end-to-end encryption. So then, well, okay. So let me rephrase. You need to have encryption on your end. You can't guarantee that the the, the person on the other end has encryption. There's not really a way to guarantee that. But your email needs to be encrypted, and whatever email you're using needs to be able to sign off on a BAA. So Google G Suite will do that. Office 365 will do that. I'm not aware of any others that do, but I'm sure they're out there. So I'm going to take, again, as I usually do from HIPAA Journal, HIPAA HIPAA encryption requirements. The HIPAA encryption requirements have for some been a source of confusion. The reason for this is the technical safeguards relating to encryption of protected health information are defined as addressable requirements. Furthermore, the HIPAA encryption requirements for transmission security state that covered entities should implement a mechanism to encrypt PHI whenever deemed appropriate. This instruction is considerably vague and open to interpretation, hence the confusion. Now, there are services, and so I'm adding in my own now, there are services out there, such as Zix, that will um, allow you to encrypt data as you send the email. So you put in a subject, you put in a word in the subject, and that tells Zix that you need to encrypt that email. The term addressable does not mean the safeguard is something that can be put off until another day. It actually means that the safeguard should be implemented. An alternative to safeguard that produces the same results should be implemented or a covered entity has to document with a justifiable reason why no course of action has been taken in respect of this safeguard. The phrase, whenever deemed appropriate, could, for example, be applied to covered entities that exchange communications via an internal server protected by a firewall. In this scenario, there should be no risk to the integrity of PHI from an outside source when confidential patient data is at rest or in transit. So at rest meaning it's sitting on that server or sitting on a device, and in transit means it's in email or in text messaging. There are secure text messaging apps now that you can use, and there are also mobile applications, which we discussed last week, um, one of them being Follow My Health, that you can use as well. Once a communication containing PHI goes beyond a covered entity firewall, encryption becomes an addressable safeguard that must be dealt with. This applies to any form of electronic communication, email, SMS, instant message, etc. Except in a case where a patient has given their express written permission for the PHI to be communicated without encryption. And as we discussed last week with an application, that would be a third-party application uh, not provided by the covered entity, the healthcare practice. How to approach Encryption issues. One of the one of the reasons why the HIPAA encryption requirements are vague and open to interpretation is that when the original security rule was enacted, it was acknowledged that technology advances. What may be considered appropriate encryption standards one day may be inappropriate another. In other words, today we have 128, 256 bit. 256 obviously is better, so if you can use 256, you absolutely should. But encryption standards, when the security rule was created, which was you know, six, seven years ago, um, maybe don't apply today. Maybe they're not, they're not, um, the encryption standards then were not as good as they are now. Just look at how passwords have evolved during the life of HIPAA. Consequently, the Department of Health and Human Services did not demand that covered entities implement security mechanisms that could be out of date with if, within a few years and instead left the HIPAA encryption requirements technology neutral. This allows covered entities to select the most appropriate solution for the individual circumstances, the encryption requirements apply to every part of the IT system, from clients like cell phones to the servers like Amazon Cloud or Microsoft Azure. So I do see Amazon more and more um, promoting their HIPAA 
um, capabilities, I guess. So HIPAA email encryption, the HIPAA security rule allows covered entities to transmit EPHI via email over an electronic open network, provided the information is adequately protected. HIPAA covered entities must decide whether or not to use encryption for email. That that decision must be based on the results of a risk analysis. The risk analysis will identify the risk to the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of EPHI, and a risk management plan must then be developed to reduce those risks to an appropriate level. One of the ways that risk can be managed is by using encryption for all messages. Although if an equivalent level of protection can be offered by another means, the covered entity can be used can use that measure in place of encryption. The decision along with the details of the alternative protection must be documented and made available to OCR in the event of an audit. OCR does not specify HIPAA email encryption requirements, but covered entities can find out more about electronic mail security from the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST. You've probably heard me refer to NIST multiple times in this podcast. NIST recommends the use of advanced encryption standard, also known as AES-128, 192, or 256-bit encryption. Open, P- open PGB and SMIME, S slash MIME. Um, so you heard me say 128, 192, or you, you heard me say 128, 256, or 256 earlier. Obviously, if you can, you're going, going to want to use 256. And um, I would imagine with quantum computing coming, they're going to want to improve on that as well. <clears throat> Using secure messaging solutions to resolve encryption issues. So this is what my kid's pediatrician uses, and this is what I talked about last week. They use an application from Allscripts called Follow My Health. And whenever there's a communication that needs to come to me regarding the kids, it comes through the application and I just get an email saying there's a new message. That's it. There's, it doesn't say anything else. It just says there's a new message. And then I have to log into this secure application, read the message in there. Um, so using secure messaging solutions to resolve encryption issues. Due to the increased use of personal mobile devices in the workplace, maintaining the inter- integrity of PHI in a healthcare environment is a problem for many covered entities. Around 80% of healthcare professionals use a mobile device to help them manage their workflows. Abandoning unencrypted laptops, smartphones, and tablets would have serious consequences for the flow of communication in a healthcare organization. A solution to encryption issue is to implement a secure messaging platform. Secure messaging platforms comply with HIPAA encryption requirements by encrypting PHI both at rest and in transit, making it unreadable, undecipherable, and unusable if the communication containing PHI is intercepted or accessed without authorization. These secure messaging solutions not only meet HIPAA email encryption requirements, they also meet the requirements for access control, audit controls, integrity controls, and ID authentication. So there's a, a, a good use case for those mobile applications as long as the mobile application is either created in-house, which is highly unlikely with most healthcare providers or as provided by your EHR, EMR vendor. In this case of Follow My Health, it would be um, all scripts. Find out more about encryption so you can learn more about encryption. Um, there's a, a, a another guide on HIPAA Journal, the HIPAA Compliance Guide. Um, we didn't talk about at rest, encryption at rest, Um too much here because it'll vary depending on your environment so in a server you will use bitlocker for sure and the keys in any any event the the encryption key will need to be a separate location from from that device so server a little easier to manage you'll use a key management system 
if you have a laptop or smartphone, if you have a smartphone, turn on encryption on your smartphone. And then this way it's encrypted unless you unlock it. And then turn on biometrics if you have that capability on a smartphone, and most of them do now. Turn on biometrics, so thumbprint, finger, um, fingerprint scanner, or um, facial recognition. And include a pin just in case. Um, this will help pr protect the information even further. Um, laptops, you can have, depending on what version of Windows you have, or um whatever the case may be you'll you can absolutely add encryption to that laptop either through windows if it's if it's the right version of windows and right hardware configuration you can include bitlocker on the on the laptop just to make sure the key is in a different location and um if not there are third party encryption software out there that you can use same same type of um security though make sure the key is in a different location not on the laptop not on the device um, and then thumb drives, portable drives, things like that, you'll want to, using those same third-party third systems, you can encrypt those. However, I would recommend against thumb drives. I just don't see a good use case for thumb drives at this point. It seems crazy to have a thumb drive with PHI, and, you know, these things are small. They're pretty much the same size as a thumb, and you lose it, in some cases smaller, and you lose it, and it's not encrypted. You just lost a bunch of information. And they're not hard to lose. I lose them all the time. I don't have sensitive information on thumb drives, but I lose them all the time. They do break, um, even though th in theory they're not supposed to. They do break. So I would avoid thumb drives altogether, even portable hard drives. Just use cloud and make sure everything is encrypted. You can set up a Dropbox account or a OneDrive account Um you know, OneDrive is Microsoft, so you can set those up and set them up to be HIPAA compliant um, if you're using the right version of those softwares in Dropbox case. So that's the HIPAA encryption uh, education piece that I wanted to go over with you today. Uh, and again, we bring this up because there's still cases. There was just a a penalty, uh, a, a fine settlement last, I think it was two weeks ago I talked about it, or maybe it was last week, about the um, ambulance company that, that left the laptop in the back of the ambulance and it disappeared. The laptop was not encrypted. Now, that was back in 2013, so it's been a few years that it happened, but they just received the fine, the settlement uh, a couple weeks ago. So it's still it's still happening even today. Um, and email, absolutely. So with email, beyond encryption, make sure you set up multi-factor authentication for your email. Uh, but it's still happening in email as well. I just worked with a, 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 a practice that was not using encrypted email. They weren't even using a professional email account. Um, they were using a free email account. And so we've got them squared away. And now it's encrypted and it's professional and it's not costing them that much to actually manage that account monthly. Um, so that does it for the HIPAA education piece. That does it for this episode of the Proactive IT Podcast. So until next week, everybody have a great week. And remember to stay secure.